Discover over 100 episodes of Bartholomew Town on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. You know, a big part of my job is trying to mentor and inspire that next generation. So, you know, I'm, I'm often exposed to those folks. I mean, you know, I've taught classes at, at uh, University of Rhode Island. Um, I do lectures everywhere and as many as I can, as much as I can. Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On today's episode, a look at conservation efforts here in Rhode Island with a conservation director at Roger Williams Park Zoo, Lou Parati. Great to be back with each and every one of you from the Bartholomew Town Podcast studios here in Providence, Rhode Island. I was out of the country for a couple of weeks down in Brazil, although I did manage to get each episode posted right before I left, so you shouldn't have had too much of a disruption to your podcast consumption schedule. And we were off last week, the week after Labor Day, giving you the opportunity to catch up on some of the older episodes you may have missed, something I do from time to time. Not right now, though. There are plenty of episodes heading your way every Tuesday and Friday, new episodes, and I'm pretty excited about some of the tapings that are scheduled or in some cases have even already happened. Fascinating conversation on today's episode with uh, Roger Williams Park Zoo's conservation director, Lou Parati. And I had kind of expected this to be, you know, a bit of an environmental discussion. And it certainly was, don't get me wrong. But uh, what's really interesting is how conservation efforts in Rhode Island really do tie into any kind of long-term plan for developing Rhode Island for the future. So that's sort of a premise that we explored uh, unintentionally here today. When we're discussing infrastructure, education, whatever it may be, when we're looking to Rhode Island's future, it's critical to include environmental issues, certainly on a conservation basis in that discussion and on a multitude of levels. So stand by, coming up in a matter of moments, my conversation with the zoo's Lou Parati. All right, folks, we are well past back to school, Labor Day weekend, that whole deal here in southern New England breaking out the sweatshirts, you know the drill. Now, there's still plenty of time for some summer activities, don't get me wrong. But if you're like me, you're probably starting to think about, maybe even get excited about autumn. And when I think about autumn, one of the things that jumps out is the Jack-O-Lantern Spectacular presented by Citizens Bank. And it's back this year, October 3rd through November 3rd at Roger Williams Park Zoo. Now, what can you expect from this year's Jack-O-Lantern Spectacular? This year, guests will travel through a seasonal wonderland and celebrate the joys of New England. Visitors will feast their senses on autumn's beauty, winter's swirling snow, spring's first blossoms, and summer's ocean breezes. Summer, where we are right now, you better get out there and enjoy it. A few weeks left, because then right after it, it's autumn. And when I think of autumn, what do I think of? The Jack-O-Lantern Spectacular. Come check out thousands of intricately carved pumpkins, all displayed along the zoo's beautiful wetlands trail, complete with music and special effects. It's the 2019 Jack-O-Lantern Spectacular presented by Citizens Bank, October 3rd through November 3rd at Roger Williams Park Zoo in Providence. A great way that you can support the Bartholomew Town Podcast is to subscribe on your favorite app and also leave us a rating and review. Okay, without further ado, my conversation with Roger Williams Park Zoo's conservation director, Lou Parati. I grew up in the state, I'm total Rhode Island native. Um, you know, I was a kid who was fortunate enough to grow up in the woods, and you know, I was one of those kids that wasn't playing baseball and all that. You know, I was flipping stones, looking for critters, and um, you know, which uh, 
course, formed my passion for snakes. Snakes have always been my, my thing, you know. And, God, I was, I was breeding boa constrictors when I was 11 years old and had very supportive parents. And it just grew into a passion. And I just couldn't uh, learn enough about them, learn enough about the natural history of them, uh, and all the other amazing creatures that are in the woods. So I, I grew up, I guess, vicariously through National Geographic magazines. And, you know, we didn't have back then all the, the awesome documentaries and things that we can get now on these cable networks and, and all that. So, um, so yeah, and, uh, you know, when I was 18, I was one of the co-founders of the Rhode Island Herpetological Association. Uh, I used to do a lot of schools and libraries bringing in, you know, turtles and snakes into classrooms and got pretty well known as the snake guy in in the state and um and then yeah the zoo uh was looking for somebody who had experience taking care of reptiles and other ectotherms i applied for the job 20 years ago and uh, was a zookeeper at first um i think nine years of of zookeeping taking care of uh, most of the creatures that we have in our uh, rainforest building um and, and, of course, the reptiles and amphibians. Um, and then uh, I took the job as director of conservation programs is where I currently sit now. And that's an aspect of Roger Williams Park Zoo that a lot of people don't think of when they think of the zoo. They think of the facility itself, but not necessarily the advocacy work, even some, to an extent, uh, lobbying that goes on. Absolutely. I mean, two-thirds of our mission is conservation and education. You know, we make sure we're not only inspiring the next generation, but also putting our resources uh, where their needs are, um, you know, for the conservation issues that we face today, whether that's habitat restoration, uh, restoring species through captive breeding, um, you name it. Um, we try to, you know, throw our hat in the in the ring for uh, as many things as we like to have a conservation tie to every species we keep in our zoo. In terms of uh, a lot of people are who are um, packaging climate change as the major challenge of our times, they refer to you know the the conservation challenges and. In some cases, they refer to it as the greatest threat to civilization or economic development, even on a micro level. So in a lot of ways, the zoo's kind of, you know, exploring ways to to preserve the natural resources that we have here. Under this pressure of climate change. Right. Exactly. While also informing our visitors and, you know, the people that come through our programs, you know, about climate change and what they can do to help curb, you know, this now accelerating uh, issue. Yeah, and it's, you know, there's there's always the thought of global warming and how it, it you know, the rising seas and everything. But right, you know, from my anecdotally, um, I've I've noticed a change in the wilderness and the woods and the amount of turtles that you encounter in South County, for example. Um, now we've, we're seeing shifts with bears. We're seeing potentially everything. shifts in uh, obviously definitely shifts in the ocean in terms of some of the patterns of uh, marine life that's out there oh, yeah. even birds you know that time their nesting and the hatching of their chicks with yeah. the hatch of a mayfly have now had their chicks hatch and find the mayflies have already hatched and there's no food for them so we're seeing all these little nuances going on out there that uh it's hard for us as conservationists to, to plan for that especially if we're doing species reintroductions. You know, we have to ask ourselves now, is this habitat going to be suitable for these animals in another 50 to 75 years? You know, so it's something that we really have to make sure we incorporate into our conservation planning uh, to make sure we're doing right by the species that we're targeting. 
Let's talk about Beatles specifically. I know that's one of your passions. Um, it is. A lot of people look at it as a nuisance, but I grew up near a, a compost earth care farm down in Charlestown. was in my backyard, so I had a slightly different relationship with them. You know what I mean? They are a nuisance in a way if, you're, if you let them. Well, you know, there's, there's you know. <laughs> over 500,000 species of beetles, so you know, I think there's more species of beetle than all other plants and animals on the planet. So there's a big diversity, you know, and some may be nuisances in the garden, but some are also beneficial. And the species we work with, the American burying beetle, which I must mention is our official state insect, uh, thanks to a third grade class at uh, St. Michael's Country Day School in Newport. Um, but this is a high-end recycler, so this is a carrion beetle that requires a vertebrate carcass um, of a certain size that they bury, prepare for their larva. Um, they show some of the highest biparental care in the insect world. So once the larva hatch, uh, that first instar stage, their mandibles aren't strong enough to eat on their own, so they uh, stroke the mandibles of the, the adults to solicit feedings from the adults, so they actually feed them like baby birds. So mm. their natural history and behaviors are just off the charts cool. Um, it's a uh, federally endangered um, beetle. It's disappeared from 90% of its range uh, over the last 100 years. It was uh, listed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as endangered in 1989. Um, so since then, there's been some efforts to captive rear them and reintroduce them to a historic range. And uh, Rogelines Park Zoo has been working with the species since 1994. Um, the only extant population left in the eastern portion of its range is Block Island. Really? Uh, yeah, nowhere else. Uh, they used to range 35 states uh, from the East Coast all the way just to east of the Rocky Mountains. Um, and now you can only find them in six populations. So Block is the only place you can find them in the east. And then other than that, out west, they're in uh, South Dakota, Kansas, uh, Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. Um, so this thing just disappeared. Um, so, yeah, we take... Um, founder stock from Block Island, um, bring them to the zoo, and then we rare multiple generations of them for release onto Nantucket Island uh, in June of every year. So you're trying to basically build a second We're, island right. population out here? Exactly, exactly. In case, and we talk about climate change, you know, if you talk about island populations, you know, they're at risk. And not only from sea level rise, but stronger storms, you know, droughts, uh, you name it, you know. And this beetle... Uh, you know, 75% of them die naturally over winter, so that 25% need to recruit. And if they're flooded out because of a big rain event, you know, they can only take a few years of a hit like that before we could see that population starting to blink on us. Yeah. So fortunately, Block Island's pretty stable right now, and we've got a, a good population going on Nantucket presently. I'll be going out there in a couple of weeks uh, to monitor that again. Um, so, yeah, we're happy in, in that we have this, you know, insurance population out there in case we do uh, see something stochastic happen on Block Island. Sure. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm reminded of the piping plovers, you know, as a kid, the protected areas. Obviously, there, that was probably much more widespread than this sounds. And but still is. Yeah. Is there a, a, are there other uh, creatures that we should be concerned about in our own backyards here that are disappearing, that, that are highly protected? That Well, you know, um, we have... You know, one state endangered amphibian, uh, the eastern spadefoot toad. So we have, uh, and the zoo's involved and partners with URI, of course, Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management. Um, we just recently, there's only one known population in our state. 
Um, so uh, through some grants and a lot of partners, we built two artificial breeding sites for these guys in, in the hopes that you build them, they will come. Um, it's very near the uh, current existing population. But the natural history of the toad is interesting because it takes a heavy rain event, three to six inches of rain, to get these things breeding. Hmm. And we haven't seen them breed in our state since 2013. Um, but fortunately, we did see a couple of weeks ago, we had that heavy uh, rain and thunderstorms that triggered a breeding event. Um, so we were able to collect some tadpoles that we can rear and head start and in captivity. Um, we're doing that at the zoo. Um, and then we will release uh, back to the site of origin and then hopefully um, increase the, the range of the species throughout the state. Big time work that it's, you're doing it's there. It's great stuff. I love it. And, yeah. uh, and another one I think we should be worried about is our turtles. You know, I mean, we have some Second unique that. turtles here. Um, you know, you watch the news every other month. There's a confiscation of North American turtles uh, being shipped, you know, out of the United States, usually going overseas to Asia, either for the food uh, markets or uh, pet pet trade. Really? Know. So how widespread is that? It's widespread. Yeah, I we're mean, talking about people who are actually in the woods or in in marshes in collecting turtles, collecting these things to make money to sell them overseas markets. And is that something DEM police enforce or who's in charge of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's usually the environmental police officers that look at that. Uh, everything from the federal police right to down to state levels. Um, you know, they just made a big confiscation in New York. Uh, very, very recently, hundreds of turtles. Okay. And we're talking spotted turtles, eastern box turtles, wood turtles, even bog turtles, which are federally protected. So, you know, they're ruthless. And again, these populations can only take so many hits. And a lot of the ones collected are the females going to the nesting sites. You know, so not only are you getting an adult female, but you're getting the next generation along with her and then completely stopping recruitment within that population. And, you know, these populations can only take so many of those hits yeah. uh, before we really start noticing, oh, oh, we're not seeing these things anymore, you know. Yeah. So we really need to get ahead of that. And, you know, we've been working again with DEM monitoring some of our more sensitive species in the state, trying to get a good rip, uh, grip on what our population sizes are, mm -hmm. distribution in the state. Uh, trying to identify key nesting sites, uh, road mortality sites, because that's another big one yeah. uh, for most uh, you know, reptiles and amphibians. Because a lot of them make these migrations to either the nuptial ponds to breed, in the case of amphibians, or uh, female turtles that go nest in the same fields or the same you know, hillsides every year are the ones that find themselves now uh, having to traverse crossroads where you know, cars and, and uh, reptiles don't mix. Yeah, animal, bird, and, and turtle trafficking. Yeah. What a, I have a painting or a drawing I made years ago. Uh, you know, have a painting of like a toucan. It's like bird trafficking, a coward's game. You know what I mean? It really is. Like, yeah, poaching, what a cowardly poaching way to, to, to hustle. It really know? is. It really is. And, you know, even with elephants, you know, we're sure. seeing it. Um, you know, we all hear the plight of elephants and, you know, the ivory and, of course, rhino. Um, but elephant poaching, you know, it's not just the villager trying to feed his family anymore, you know. Right. It's these terrorist groups now that realize they can make just as much money selling illegal animal parts, hence ivory, um, as opposed to you know smuggling drugs or humans. Um, and if they're caught, the penalty is basically a slap on the wrist as opposed to if they got caught smuggling humans or drugs. So what they're doing now is they're arming the poachers with more sophisticated military-grade weapons, uh, which is making the killing more ruthless. And the last count was 96 elephants a day are being dropped uh, for their ivory. 96 a day 
So as we've done this interview, we've probably lost three or four elephants uh, just, just during this interview alone, which is frightening. So uh, Roger Williams Park Zoo is, uh, we support a lot of in-country elephant conservation initiatives. Uh, we support the Terengiri Elephant Project. Um, where we support a bunch of Maasai warriors that we actually arm with cell phones and bicycles. And uh, nobody knows the bush like the Maasai. And they go out and they look, f you know, when these elephants are in the Terengiri Park, they're fairly safe. But when the droughts come and the elephants move out of the park, that's when they run into issues. And, and not only poaching, but, uh, you know, human-elephant conflict um, through uh, agriculture raiding, you know, raiding crops. And once an elephant becomes a habitual crop raider, they're usually shot. So what this project has done, Charles and Laura Foley, um, they've collared over 1,500 elephants and followed their dispersal paths and find out where they're getting into trouble. Um, they mitigate with these landowners and farmers how to use deterrents to keep these elephants uh, you know, from crop raiding, whether that be use of you know, hot pepper sprays. Uh, right now, the, uh, the ingenious way is they're using honeybees, which is... Uh, really cool because it, it kind of kills two birds at one stone. Right, double effect there. Yeah, you give them the honeybees, they get the source of, uh, of honey now, they got pollination for the crops, and elephants like honey too, but once they raid a beehive and get stung on the trunk, they'll never go near another one again. And just the sight of beehives turn them around, they won't go near there. So wow. there's a great project yeah. called uh, Bees for Elephants, which uh, has been uh, providing bee beehives to uh, to farmers in in country in Africa, which is great. Um, but then you know, with the poaching issues, we have the Maasai out there, the eyes of the forest for us. And uh, if they see any illegal activity, it's called in on the cell phones, and then the anti the armed anti poaching units will either go out apprehend or, in some cases, you know, get shot. Yeah, they shoot to kill. It's, it, it is a ruthless business out there, and the good guys get hurt and killed as well. You know, so it's uh, kudos to the people in country doing doing that kind of work because um, you know it's a it's an uphill battle. Yeah, that's big time stuff. That's off the first or second blip of, of information that any the average person's consuming for sure. Absolutely, you know, and it's going on in the world. We don't see that on the news, you know? right? Yeah. yeah. Um, what well, we do today, at least on uh, <laughs> Bartholomew Town podcast. Right okay. on, right on. <laughs> Um, real, I want to touch on, uh, in these last few minutes, I want to touch on your experience working with Rhode Island, but a question for you. I've asked a few people, particularly from Northern Rhode Island, I've always been fascinated. Diamond Hill, rattlesnakes, yes or no? No. No. No, there hasn't seen, been uh, a sighting of a timber rattlesnake, and there's going to be a million people that are going to call, oh, he's got him in my under. No, they're not in Rhode Island. They were extirpated in the 1960s. We've been looking for them. I've been looking for them for over 45 years. Every single call that comes into me that says they see him, I follow up, I check on it. It's usually a hognose snake or a milk snake because there are some lookalikes to the average person that could I could see where they would mistake it possibly. Uh, but if you've seen a timber rattlesnake, there's no mistaking that for any other snake. It's just a very majestic snake. Same um, with down in Hopkinton, Arcade, all that. There's no... No. On the rocks there, some people uh, say, oh, they nest on the rocks in, in the parks. No. No, there are no venomous snakes in the state of Rhode Island, and not even copperhead. There is n even no historic record for northern copperheads in Rhode Island. Really? So that's a myth as well. The, the, yeah. the, you go They're down, right over you the You go line. down to Alton, and you jump in the, you know, down at the westerly kind of Charlestown border there. There's, there's, there's no history there. Nothing that has ever, where we've actually had our hands on a specimen or a, uh, you know, authenticated photo nothing 
fascinating. So, last one. That's was, relieving, you know. Last one was uh, <laughs> Tiverton, in Rhode Island, nineteen sixty-seven. It, mm. it was actually shot, um, and that that was the last one that was has ever been seen. And in that the, was a copperhead or tim, timber timber rattle? timber yep. rattlesnake. Yep. 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 Um, yeah, in these last few minutes, your experience as you've gone around interacting with kids throughout the state and, and interacting with anyone throughout the state, do you find that there's a, a real desire to get more and more connected with the, um, the uh, climate that we live in, the, the environment that we live in through animal conservation? Is that, is that kind of a pathway for people to get closer to some kind of sense of grounding, some kind of sense of who we all are, or is it more just purely entertaining of, wow, can I pet the sloth? That's fun. You know? Well, you know, I think there's a little of both, you yeah. know, and it depends what circle you're in, you know, and, yep. and, you know, a big part of my job is trying to mentor and inspire that next generation. So, you know, I'm, I'm often exposed to those folks. I'm, you know, I've taught classes at, at uh, the University of Rhode Island. Um, I do lectures everywhere and as many as I can, as much as I can. Um, and then, you know, we live in this tech age now where, you know, a lot of these kids are buried in the phone and, you know, they, nature has nothing for them. And, you know, those, those types of people, I don't know if you'll ever be able to instill that in them. Um, but, um, but there is a great cohort of the next generation in our state. And I'm proud to say I work alongside a lot of them. A lot of them I watched grow up through our zoo camps, uh, you know, I see them in URI in their classes when I go and talk. I said, oh, I remember you, you when you were in, in zoo camp, you know. And then now some of these are our state and federal biologists that are working in the state now, which is uh, fantastic to see that, that transition of these, these kids that were running around our zoo in pink shirts in our camp are now the ones writing our permits, which is, which is really neat to see. So, yeah, and I think Rhode Island, we're very lucky. We have a, a state that really cares about our environments, uh, you know, our open space, our bay, our oceans, um, you know, and I'm proud to say that we have a lot of support from, you know, Department of Environmental Management, uh, all the universities. Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm also on the board of the Rhode Island Natural History Survey, who does a great job of connecting people um, to nature and connecting them with the information they need to make sure that we're safeguarding this stuff into the future and making sure we're going to leave this planet to the next generation as good, if not a little better than it was left to us. So, um, yeah, it's nice to live in a state that that is priority and, and has been. And so, yeah, I agree. It's part of the identity. It's part of the, uh, the history going all the way absolutely. back when you, you know, we, I've been the last really trying to, I've always tried to look to the indigenous timeline instead of the, the Western timeline of thinking, all right, you know, Rhode Island started in uh, 1640 or whatever, thinking, no, it's Way thousands of years that. old. Yes, I sir. was standing in front of the, uh, the tower in Newport, that mysterious solarium, and just thinking, this thing could be, they could be way off and when this thing was built by hundreds of years. You know, there's no reason to think that uh, our current, Civil, civilization and version of it is, you know, the beginning of uh, of Rhode Island. I think it goes way back and, oh, and to the man, Narragansett Indians, the Narragansetts yeah, and yeah. and Mashpee and and uh, and hey, even before that, some of these creatures that that were trying to protect. And nobody lived in harmony more with nature than the Native Americans. You know, right. so we can learn a lot from Native American culture. That's for sure, no question. And even our zoo, if you look at our zoo, we're the third oldest zoo in the country. You know, so we've been inspiring for many, 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 many generations. And, you know, the zoo's been a wonderful place for people to come, not only have a good time with the family, but 
And, you know, what they don't know, too, is every time they pay an admission or come through our gate or buy a membership, you know, they're helping conserve those elephants in Africa. They're helping me rear some of the most endangered amphibians in South America. You know, they're helping with these turtle surveys, these, you know, keeping the American burying beetle on the planet. The New England cottontail rabbit, our only native cottontail. You know, our zoo has been breeding those now since 2010. We now have created populations in New Hampshire, Maine. Um, we're actually putting this thing back um, where it had been extirpated from many, many years ago due to hunting and habitat loss. And the rabbit also, the project has, um, you know, uh, sparked a lot of habitat restoration. So you're seeing a lot of this early successional habitat restoration going on around the state, which not only benefits cottontail rabbit, but it benefits other species like woodcocks, eastern box turtles, black racers, you know, partridge, grouse, a lot of these ground-nesting birds that we're not seeing anymore because of the loss of this habitat. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a synergy of, of things that, you know, are going on here that most people that come through the gate that are supporting through, you know, coming to our zoo don't realize that they're supporting. So we appreciate you helping us get that word out there. there. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, with so much discussion on education, infrastructure, intangibles right now when you look to Rhode Island's future and admittedly even I put climate environment you know it's not on the top of the list of things if someone said what do we need to do for tw in terms of 25 years but the reality is the work you're doing chipping away at it is fundamental to everything you know and none of it is going to stay uh stay for very long if we don't continue to uh, chip away at the environment it's just a fact yeah i mean you know the old saying the worst thing we can do is nothing you know right. you know even if it's one beetle at a time you know we're you know we're out there doing it so um and and proud to say we're we're a leader in it you know for a small zoo um, we're pretty well known for our conservation and education programs not only throughout the aza but uh but na uh, internationally as well that's all the time we have for today, but I'll be back on Friday with a brand new episode. And there's over 100 episodes of Bartholomew Town on your favorite app, ripodcast.com and bartholomewtown.com. Hope you enjoyed today's program. Until next time, I'm Bill Bartholomew, and we'll talk soon.